You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It will be the shot heard around the world when it comes. A coronavirus vaccine. It's the great hope for stopping the pandemic, saving lives, and allowing us to return to our daily routines and a sense of normalcy. But when exactly will the vaccine arrive? Even though it's been given highest priority, it may still be 12 to 18 months before it can be deployed. Why does it take so long? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, the who, what, and when of a coronavirus vaccine, who's involved in making it, what's involved in testing it, and the timeline for its arrival. Plus, while he doesn't consider himself brave we do, meet a Seattle volunteer enrolled in the first American vaccine trial. And while we mount an elaborate defense against a formidable foe, scientists are asking a surprising question. Is a virus even alive? It's vaccine when? It seems more of a philosophical question than a scientific one, but it exists at the intersection of both. Is a virus a living thing? The answer to some is obvious. Alive, it's alive, it's alive! That's not everyone's answer to the question of whether a virus is a living organism. Viruses are really remarkable little packages. They're not really alive and they're not really dead. They're little gene segments wrapped in protein. And they're very innovative in that they can invade a cell and they can hijack it and make it work for them. So essentially they are the ultimate zombie virus. They can actually take over a cell and make it their own. The definition of virus has changed over the centuries. The term virus in medieval times referred to a poisonous excretion, such as the discharge from an ulcer. Virus is originally from the Latin, meaning slimy liquid or poison. So before we get into what's involved in the global challenge of inoculating ourselves against a virus, just what kind of thing are we protecting ourselves against? Is it alive or not? Well, it depends on whom you ask. And we asked Nigel Brown. He's an emeritus professor of molecular microbiology at the University of Edinburgh, and he has an argument for one side of the debate. Nigel, the coronavirus behaves as though it's alive. I think I even read a description of its movements as if it were stalking people, and it surely feels that way. Of course, it's not doing that, but it's also hard to imagine that a virus, one that's causing all this havoc, is actually not alive Nonetheless, that's what some people argue, including you. I have argued that, and the reason that I argue that is a virus can't exist independently. It has to have a host. And unfortunately, in the case of this coronavirus, the host is human. 
and it's a very successful virus in that host. Well, if it's not alive, I mean, what is it? People have certainly seen the photos, and, you know, they look like a little ball, a little wrinkly ball with these spikes sticking out of it and so forth. You know, if you take that apart, what do you find? Don't you find, you know, the same sorts of things you would find if you took apart something that was alive? No, you don't find all that it needs. It needs all the equipment that a cell has to synthesize proteins, to synthesize its genetic material, and the virus doesn't possess that. The host does. I sometimes describe viruses as gift-wrapped genetic material, and that's what they are. They're a bit of RNA in this case, that's gift-wrapped in a protein and a bit of a membrane that it's stolen from its last host. Well, if it's not alive, what is it? Well, it's non-living. And there's a very philosophical and semantic argument about what life is. There are over a hundred different definitions of life, I'm told, and nobody can come up with a satisfactory one that covers every possible living organism. But viruses do possess some of the characteristics of living organisms. They do reproduce in their host, and they do mutate and evolve. So they do change over time. And changing over time is a particular issue with RNA viruses, of which this coronavirus is one. So it does possess some qualities that you might expect of life, but not all of them. I seem to recall a paper by Chris Chiba and Carol Cleland, maybe a decade ago or more, in which they pointed out that if you take a substance like water, you know, for a long time, people couldn't really tell you what water is. All they could do is sort of define the properties of water, right? It's sort of transparent, and it's liquid, and it, you know, boils at this temperature, freezes at that temperature, whatever. But that there really was no definition of life that was equivalent to saying that water was H2O, and then you're done. That's water. There was no equivalent for life. Is there one that we haven't found, do you think? Nope. <laughs> I think that's, that's one of the issues. I mean, it's something that scientists, I guess, more for fun than for real desire for biological advancement, uh, still debate. It's much more a philosophical and semantic question uh, than it is a biological one. We know what living organisms look like. We know that things like viruses that affect living organisms, we know what they look like. And it's all part of the biology. Where you define where life is and where life isn't is really semantics. You know, you've already mentioned that viruses do evolve. And that's certainly one of the canonical uh, definitions usually used for life. You know, it, it, it's subject to Darwinian evolution. If it weren't alive, if something, you know, you just took the other side of this argument and say, no, viruses are not alive, how can they evolve? They can evolve because of the pressures placed on them when they reproduce and their uh, effect on their host. Basically, as a gift-wrapped nucleic acid, a gift-wrapped genetic material, it's the genetic material that's evolving and therefore the genetics of the virus changes. It's how that affects the host that determines whether it's a successful mutation and evolution or an unsuccessful one. How would people on the other side of this argument uh, maintain that viruses actually are alive? I mean, as you say, it's philosophical. Does it mean it's sort of like two people standing there and, you know, looking at a Vincent van Gogh painting and, you know, and disagreeing about whether it's art or not? Well, no, I mean, there are colleagues who say that viruses are alive, and I think we respect each other's point of view. I think we each understand the different arguments that can apply. And possibly one of the most powerful arguments from the people who argue that viruses are alive is if you look at the proteins that they contain, some of those proteins seem to be very specific to viruses as if they'd evolved as a separate fourth class of life, um, other than you know the bacteria, the archaea, the eukaryotes, and then you'd have the viruses. And I respect that argument. Given their total dependence on living cells, does it seem then probable or improbable to suggest that all life could have started with a virus, that virus was the first life on Earth? It could certainly be something that looked like a virus but it would still have to have a mechanism of reproduction. It would still have to have a way of copying itself. Now, we know at the moment 
that that mechanism is extremely complex. It's the metabolic processes within a cell. There may well have been a simple process that we don't know yet where you can copy the genetic material. And basically it's a self-replicating piece of genetic material, be that uh, DNA or RNA. So I can accept the fact that very early on there was copied genetic material. To my mind, that is still not a living organism. It is a copied chemical. So finally, Nigel, uh, to argue whether viruses are alive or not alive is kind of a moot point, maybe even a semantic point, maybe philosophical, but you know that gives it a lot of Greek uh, etymology there that maybe you don't need. Maybe it's just a moot point, but in the face of a viral epidemic, whether it's smallpox, polio, or coronavirus, I mean, clearly they're quite adept at wreaking havoc, but then again, so is lead in the drinking water. So that doesn't really shed much light on whether they're alive or not, but we still have to understand them, of course. Absolutely. And, and the definition of life apart, understanding how viruses work, how they affect the host, how they transmit, and how they become more efficient. Because um, if you think about it, the most efficient lifestyle, if you want to call it that, for a virus is not to kill the host. It's actually to make the host very sick so it can reproduce. But, you know, then you know, it can infect more and more hosts. If the host subsequently dies, that's not a problem for the virus, if you like. It has managed to reproduce and, and spread. But, uh, you know, if it kills its host very quickly, then it's not an efficient virus. I, I don't know if I should take comfort in that. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I can. <laughs> Nigel Brown, thanks so very much for speaking to us. Pleasure. Nigel Brown is an emeritus professor of molecular microbiology at the University of Edinburgh. Well, Nigel Brown, who says that viruses are not alive, justifies that by saying a virus cannot exist independently. But if you subscribe to that argument, it's because you accept his definition of life, which is to say you exist independently. But on the other hand, if somebody else says, no, wait a minute, I mean, there are things that are, you know, spores and, and they're not doing much and, they, you know, they don't move around. There's no metabolism. So I don't think they're alive. I mean, I think it really boils down to what you're going to call as being alive and what you're not. And so the debate continues for that very reason, Seth. Well, whether the coronavirus is alive or not, we are concerned because it needs our cells to survive. The development of a vaccine is seen by many as the ticket to keeping it from surviving and to our re-entering society and returning to something that looks like normalcy. We've been hearing that it might take 12 to 18 months to develop a vaccine. And even though we know that's quite speedy, I mean, usually a vaccine takes years and years, still, it feels like a long time when you're sheltering in place. We asked Stanford University infectious disease epidemiologist Bonnie Maldonado to help us understand why the long wait. So when you're making a vaccine, especially in, in non-pandemic times, it takes really five to 10 years to create a good vaccine. And that can be on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars. So the fact that we're able to move this really rapidly, I think is really surprising. And I'll just, I'm gonna step back a bit because I do a lot of work with vaccines. So here we are running around, everyone wants the vaccine. So the point is that you're giving something to healthy people, essentially. So you want to make sure that whatever you give them isn't worse than the disease you're trying to fight. And that takes a long time. You have to put it in tissue culture. You have to put it in cells, make sure that it really works, make sure it doesn't kill everything in its path in terms of, you know, and not in a way of protection, but it may have some deleterious effects. You want to make sure that it's not inert, that you didn't pick the wrong product to use and that it's really not doing anything at all, that you are making antibodies, but it's not to anything that's important. So you have many, many stages to prove that it's safe, but then also to prove that it's efficacious. Right. right. So the first studies are always about safety. You have to do the preclinical stages, which take a while. You have to grow them up in tissue. Sometimes you can do some studies in animal models. And then you can take it into people. And there's essentially four stages. There's a phase one trials, which are just safety. So you give it to healthy individuals or sick people, depending on the disease. For example, if you're making a vaccine, let's just say you were making a cancer vaccine, for example, people who had end stage disease. I mean, at that point, I think they would be much more willing to get a vaccine than somebody who didn't have cancer. So you give the first dose, the first doses to see if they're safe. The phase twos are safety and some endpoint 
to either a virus endpoint, or that is, are you reducing the amount of virus, or a clinical endpoint, and what are those clinical endpoints? And then the phase three are the big trials. Those are big ones where you enroll thousands of people, and you really want in those trials to make sure that you already know the safety profile, but you're still gonna measure it, but your real endpoint there is to understand if it gets you where you wanna get, if you got the home run, are you going to prevent disease? And even when you get to that point, for example, with some of the malaria vaccines and others, you don't prevent disease in everybody. You prevent disease in some people, but is that enough? And for some diseases where there are so many people in the world, perhaps even part of the way there is good enough. Which one of those steps are we skipping over to to drop a few years after the production of these vaccines? None of them. None of them. Right now, we're just using platforms that we've already investigated. So people have gotten very good at establishing the platform so that they can test toxicity rapidly. So it took a while to build some of those platforms. In the end, you're still going to have to do phase three trials. And excuse me, what is a definition of a platform, just to be clear? For example, are you going to make a, a vaccine that's made out of RNA? Are you going to make a vaccine out of DNA? Are you going to make a vaccine out of protein? What is it that you're going to use? And we've developed those opportunities. So we know what this virus is. It, we know that it has 30,000 base pairs. We know that it has 10 to 12 genes. We know more or less what the function of some of those genes are. So are you going to take one of those gene segments and put them into, as I said, grow up that gene segment or get the protein that that gene segment codes for? How are you going to approach it? And so that's your platform. And we know how to do those things a lot more quickly now than we used to. Part of it is because we have better technology. And then you test those in cells and then you test them in animals and then ultimately in humans. If you can go quickly in humans, you're just looking for the development of antibody. But that may not be all you need. So for some viruses, even for now, if we talk about what does an antibody mean, we don't know what it means, right? We just know it means you were infected. We don't know if it means you're protected. So hand in hand with the vaccine trials, people are doing studies to try to understand what the nature of the immunity is. And then you try to mimic that immunity with the vaccine. Dr. Maldonado, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Bonnie Maldonado is a professor of pediatrics and infectious diseases at Stanford University School of Medicine. She talked about the journey to making a vaccine. Well, meet a volunteer who's helping us get there after reading a friend's message board. And he posted the message saying, if you've heard this optimistic timeline about a coronavirus vaccine possibly being ready in as little as a year, this is the clinical trial that people are referring to. So I clicked on his link and filled out the form, and that's how I first got involved with the study. For some, giving the fight against coronavirus a hand means rolling up a sleeve to offer an arm. What it's like to be a volunteer next. Vaccine when? On Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Scientists around the world are racing to develop a coronavirus vaccine, and we'll hear more about what's involved, including what kind of vaccine might emerge, and how to ramp up production and distribution later in the show. 
But the first step in testing a vaccine, as we heard, are those phase one trials to ensure safety. And those first ever human trials are already underway at the Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute in Seattle which has also conducted research on vaccine safety for diseases such as bird flu and shingles. The National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, or NIAID, part of the NIH, is funding the Seattle trial. 45 volunteers ages 18 to 55 have agreed to receive two doses of this vaccine approximately 28 days apart. The participants, including this man, received their first shots in March and April. My name is Ian Hayden. I live in Seattle, Washington. I'm a public information specialist at the University of Washington. I actually work at a research institute that itself does vaccine research, including for coronavirus vaccine. The study that I'm participating in is not related to my lab's work. The vaccine was developed by NIAID scientists and the biotech company Moderna, located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Prior studies of related coronaviruses that cause SARS and MERS helped them to develop the new vaccine quickly. In January, vaccine scientists turned their attention to Seattle for two reasons. Seattle was one of the first American cities hit hard by the coronavirus. Patient one may have been here in the Seattle area. In Washington state, they are confirming now the first U.S. death from COVID-19. We do not know who this patient is. And so, as chance would have it, The first vaccine trial for coronavirus is happening in the city where I live. I'm in good health and I I came across an opportunity to sign up. And so it just, you know, it made sense to me that this is one small way that I could contribute. The vaccine is an mRNA vaccine called mRNA-1273. It's unique because rather than using a part of an actual coronavirus, it uses some messenger RNA or mRNA to trick the body into producing the viral antigen proteins that an invading virus would stimulate. In other words, a bit of messenger RNA triggers the immune system to produce antibodies. This phase one trial, the first hurdle for a vaccine designed to establish safety, lasts 14 months. Here's how Ian Hayden got involved. I found a form online and initially expressed interest. I was then contacted by the clinic, went in for a physical and blood work, and it wasn't until all those results came back that I was actually admitted to the study. So that actually took several days to go through. As part of that enrollment process, I was given a a 20-page consent form, which included lots of details about you know, risk and what exactly it was you're signing up for and, and what's known and what's not known. And so the risks of the trials, I understand them, are, are quite small and there are a, a few of them. One relates to actually getting the shot itself in a very small number of people. They can suffer an allergic reaction to a new injection. Uh, luckily, that didn't happen to me. Another category of risk associated with the trial has to do with the fact that, of course, this is a new vaccine and it's a new virus. And nobody really knows how the vaccine or the virus interact with the immune system. So one of the things that has to be looked at very carefully in this clinical trial is, of course, this vaccine is supposed to protect the people who receive it. But it is the case very rarely with candidate vaccines that they actually make infection worse rather than blocking it. So that's going to be looked at going forward with this candidate vaccine. And are they paying you uh, to participate in this trial? They do, yeah. All the volunteers get $100 per clinic visit, so 1100 all told. Ian, can I ask you a couple personal questions? Yeah. How old are you? I am 29. Do you have a family? Um, I have my folks. I have a, a girlfriend here in the city. I, I don't have kids. Did you talk about this decision with your parents or your girlfriend? Did they feel like they wanted to be a part of it or weigh in? They've been supportive. Um, I know my my parents are proud. I know that my mother was initially a little bit worried. Um, So we spoke on the phone several times about what the study entailed, what the risks were, such as they're understood. And she's on board. I suspect she's still a little worried, but she's certainly supportive. I understand that the consent form also said that everyone in the trial needs to use birth control. What is your understanding of why that is? That's right, yeah. It it appears that's a pretty common clause in these clinical trial consent forms, and I suppose the thinking is, while somebody has agreed to have an experimental drug or an experimental vaccine in their body, that's probably not the best time for that person to also be having children, 
right? A, a, an experimental therapy can affect a pregnant person, can affect a fetus in different ways than it would an adult who's not pregnant. And so volunteers agree to, to not have children for the duration of the study and for a couple months after the study has concluded. Okay, so it's the day when you are going in for your first dose mm-hmm. of this vaccine. Mm-hmm. What was it like? So the day I got the shot, when I get to the clinic, there was actually a security guard outside because you know this, there's a lot of eyes on this clinical trial and it's in the interest of everybody involved that the clinic be safe and secure and not have any, any visitors barging in. But when I get inside, you know, it's, it's just like any other clinic. I initially had some blood drawn before receiving the injection, and that'll be sort of what they compare against going forward. And then a pharmacist came in and actually gave me the shot. You know, it took all of a couple seconds to, to administer, and it, it didn't hurt. Following that, they, they had me wait at the clinic for a full hour after receiving the injection. That was just to keep an eye on me, make sure that I don't suffer an immediate allergic reaction or, or anything like that. And what were you thinking as you're sitting there? You're thinking, I have this new vaccine inside of me right now. There's no going back. Right. It's moving right. through your body. Were you picturing that? Did you have I was, regrets? yeah. No regrets, no regrets, no. And I, so I'll admit, so... My training is as a scientist, as a biochemist. So to be honest, my, my thoughts were sort of at the molecular level at that point in time. I was, you know, imagining what what's in this vaccine. It's a it's a little bit of genetic codes, molecules of mRNA, which are supposed to enter my cells and instruct them to temporarily start making one of the viral proteins. So I was sort of picturing as best I could what that might look like, assuming this vaccine works, you know. How is it going to get into my cells? Is it going to get into my cells? How many and for how long? And, you know, that, that's honestly where, where my head was, which I, admittedly I'm sure is not, not where, it, where everyone would be. Do you know how soon after the shot you would be producing antibodies? I don't know. This is something I've been wondering a lot. Um, and, you know, it's different for different vaccines. Sometimes with vaccines like this, where there's an initial injection and then a booster, Sometimes it's not until the second injection that the immune response really kicks into gear or goes to the next stage. I suppose it's possible that I'm already having some immune response to this, assuming it's working. Can you um, feel it? Can you feel? Do you feel, feel stronger, healthier, like you have antibodies coursing through your body? I, I, I feel nothing. I feel exactly like I did a month ago, which, you know, is a good thing. If we're, we're looking for any adverse health outcomes, and, and I'm not feeling any of those. So my next question was going to be, if you have been feeling any adverse health outcomes, uh, have you been feeling achy or any pains or warm body temperature? But then also, are you allowed to tell us that? Yeah, I'm allowed to talk about it. Yeah. So the, the clinician sent me home with a little health diary and a thermometer following my first injection, and they wanted me to log how I was feeling every day. So my temperatures are all normal. I, I never had a fever. I never had any muscle fatigue, um, never had any headaches, the types of things they, they had me look out for. The only thing that I did record in my, my little health diary was at the site of the injection in my shoulder, I did have a bit of muscle pain there, pretty common with the vaccination. It's, it's not, I don't think, peculiar to this one. So aside from that, you know, the health diary is pretty boring. It, are, are there other volunteers who are participating that you stay in, in contact with? Have you kind of been monitoring each other and checking in? I, I'm not really in contact with them. I'm not told who else is in the study. Confidentiality is a big part of it. Of I decided to, to be public about my participation. I do know of two other participants out of the 45, two others in addition to myself who, who have made public comments about being in the trial. They were patients one and two who got injected. What patient number are you? I may be 40. I'm, I'm towards the end of the, end of the group. I, I do know that I am part of the high-dose group. So they're, they're testing three different doses, and they started at the low dose and then did the medium dose, and I was among the first to get the high dose. I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you feel brave? I don't, no. I'm sure uh, my decision to participate in this trial may, may, may seem brave to some, but... You know, I'm, I'm one of 45 people doing this, and, and the truth is actually thousands of people signed up to be in this study. So I was frankly surprised that I got in. I think there, there are a lot of people out there right now who are looking for, for ways to make a difference in this pandemic. 
Now, this is, you know, participating in a clinical trial is, is one way to do that. This is just the first vaccine trial that's starting here in the States. There will be many others starting as well. And I suspect it, wherever those trials take place, you'll also see many thousands of people willing to participate in those. And, you know, to sit down and, and get an injection and go back to the clinic and do blood work, you know, if that's the worst thing that happens to me as a result of, of the coronavirus pandemic, then I'm really in a fortunate situation. There are so many people who, of course, are losing their lives, but losing loved ones, losing their jobs, who are in much dire straits than I am here in my apartment in Seattle. You know, I, I think certainly the pandemic is having a toll. Hopefully it won't be on any of the, the volunteers who are in this clinical trial. Ian Hayden, thank you so much for talking to us. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Ian Hayden is a public information specialist at the University of Washington in Seattle and a participant in the first-ever coronavirus vaccine trials. Soon after we spoke with him, Ian wrote a piece that appeared in the Boston Globe about his willingness, if conditions were right, to take his participation in vaccine trials a bit further by joining something called a challenge trial. We contacted him again for an update. Ian, it's nice to talk to you again. How are you? Yeah, good to be back. I'm, I'm doing well. And I understand you just had your, your second and final shot for the vaccine trial that you're participating in. That's right. Yep. I'm, I'm all dosed up at this point. And from here on out, the researchers are just going to be monitoring my health. You were thinking of taking your volunteerism a step further by participating in something called a challenge trial. What's a challenge trial? So a challenge study or a challenge trial is a way of potentially speeding up clinical research, especially for something like the vaccine. And the basic idea is instead of waiting around, you give volunteers, you expose them to the virus. That's the challenge. That's obviously an incredibly risky thing to do. It could be a dangerous thing to do, given how little therapy there is for COVID-19. The idea is that you, who have been given a dose of the vaccine, to test it for its safety... Um, this would be a way of testing it for its efficacy, and you would be intentionally infected with the coronavirus. Have you decided whether or not you're going to do it? So I should say, importantly, um, there is no challenge study underway. No one is proposing to do this experiment. Um, there's just been a growing conversation in this field. So challenge studies have been done in the past for other diseases, and basically the conversation now is regulators, ethicists. In fact, the FDA made a statement recently that the challenge studies are something that they've begun considering, um, but they're none planned. You know, I, I'm, I'm not much of a risk taker. I'm not looking to rush into something like this. I would need to be persuaded quite a bit to consider this. But if the laboratory data looks good, conditions are right, there may be a circumstance in which I would consider doing something like this. If these vaccine challenges go forward, to what degree could they speed up the development of a vaccine? How much time might we save? It could be significant. I mean, we could be looking at, at something like months, um, you know, if things go well and the proper experiment is conducted. The step that you're essentially skipping can be the longest part of clinical testing, and that is during phase three, which is one of the latest stages of testing, a big part of, of phase three testing is waiting around. You've already vaccinated people, you've already got a control group, and you're just waiting to see how many of them acquire natural infections. With a proper challenge study, there is none of that waiting around. And so you go from many months needed for that step to you know as little as a, a couple weeks. Ian, once again, thank you for talking to us. My pleasure. Next, who is making vaccines, why there may be many approaches, more about those human challenge trials, and the other big questions about developing the life-saving shot that when it comes will be heard around the world. It is Vaccine When on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy 
to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. We all have lots of questions about the development, testing, and deployment of a coronavirus vaccine. We're already impatient for it to arrive, so let's get to some answers to your questions about it. We'll put as many as we can to Paul Offit. He's the head of the Vaccine Education Center and chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Paul, we heard from Ian Hayden earlier, and he's a volunteer in a phase one trial up in Seattle for a coronavirus vaccine. In other words, he's at the stage of a trial to make sure that the vaccine is safe. And so far, he seems to be doing well. But the vaccine itself seems to be a so-called mRNA vaccine. I believe that's something new. Uh, I think of a vaccine like one for smallpox or polio that works by inoculating someone with a weakened form of the disease setting up your immune system with the weapons, the antibodies. That's the way they usually work, right? So there's a number of different strategies used to make vaccines. You can take a virus and inactivate it, kill it with a chemical, which is the way the polio vaccine is made or the rabies vaccine is made. You can take a virus and weaken it, which is the way the measles vaccine is made. You can take just part of the virus, just one protein from the surface of the virus, which is the way the hepatitis B vaccine is made or the human papillomavirus vaccine is made. Or you can do a completely different approach, one that for which there's no existing vaccine, the so-called messenger RNA or DNA vaccine, where basically you inoculate the body with the genetic material that allows the body to make that viral protein. In this case, it would be the viral spike protein of coronavirus. And then after your body makes that protein, that viral protein, then the body makes an immune response against it. Okay, let me get this straight. mRNA, messenger RNA, it's just a little bit of, if you will, single-stranded RNA. And you shoot that into somebody, and uh, the body uses that molecule as a blueprint, kind of as a template, then to make these proteins that normally would be part of a a COVID-19 virus, right? So it's making some chemical that that virus would make or has. So your body has, does that all the time. You make proteins that help your body digest food or, or, you know, do any of the, the many, many functions that our cells do. We make messenger RNA all the time. It, it's very short-lived in the body. It doesn't last all that long before it breaks down. But, but when you make it, um, you make it so that that serves then as a blueprint to make the protein that you're interested in. Now, normally you just make proteins that your, your body cares about. You don't make viral proteins. In this case, you're giving people messenger RNA from the virus so that you'll make that viral protein so that you can then make an immune response against that viral protein. And in this case, the viral protein is the, the protein that sits on the surface of the virus that allows the virus to attach to cells. If you can prevent the virus from attaching to cells and you can prevent the virus from infecting cells or said another way, you can prevent the virus from infecting you. So this mRNA approach, why go this route? Is it it's simply the manufacturing ease? Is it more efficacious? Is it safer? Well, remember, there are more than 70 companies across the globe that are currently working on a vaccine, and they're using all strategies, meaning take the virus and kill it, take the virus and weaken it, take one part of the virus, or give, in this case, messenger RNA or DNA that contains the genes that then codes for one protein, that one protein on the virus. And there's another approach which is used, the so-called vectored virus approach, where you take a weakened virus, you clone into it the gene that, that again, like the mRNA uh, uh, story, codes for that one surface protein. All those strategies are possible. Um, which one is going to work the best? I don't know. We'll see. That's why we're doing trials to see which works the best. One of the advantages of mRNA is at least theoretically is easier to scale up because you just synthesize it. You don't have to really grow up the virus. You're just synthesizing essentially messenger RNA. And, and the quantity of uh, messenger RNA necessary to induce the response is probably 100 to 200 micrograms, which isn't very much. So you can really make grams of this messenger 
RNA, which can then vaccinate millions or tens of millions of people. That's the advantage. But again, there is no commercial product. There is no commercial vaccine that uses either messenger RNA or DNA. So it's novel territory. So whether or not it works or not, we'll see. Now, you mentioned this worldwide effort. I think I've read somewhere there are actually dozens and dozens of different vaccines. Is it significant that the U.S. has not participated in the Global Vaccine Summit? And does that mean, you know, that the U.S. is trying to find a vaccine entirely on its own? Um, I don't think it really matters whether the U.S. participated in that summit in the sense of whether we'll get a vaccines that are uh, effective and safe. And I, I want to emphasize that I don't think there's going to be a coronavirus vaccine. I think there will be several vaccines. Even in, in our country, there'll be more than one vaccine. And in the world, there'll be many more than that. So um, I don't think our failing to participate in that really is going to slow uh, vaccine research and development. There's such an enormous amount of interest, such an enormous amount of money, such an enormous amount of expertise that will try and bring us to the finish line that I don't think participating in that by the U.S. is uh, critical. And you say there will likely be many vaccines. This is not a winner-take-all scenario where, you know, the first vaccine to cross the finish line with a high efficacy rate won't just dominate the world? Well, remember, you're, you're, you know, this is a very shortened timeline. You're talking about research and development trials, typically for vaccines that take 20 years. Now we're trying to do this in a year and a half. I think you're only going to know so much when this vaccine rolls out. I think you're going to know whether it has a common and probably relatively uncommon side effect problem. I think you're going to have some rough idea about whether it works. But I think how long it works, how complete that protection is, I think is only going to be learned as we roll these vaccines out. And then I think as time goes by, you'll probably see emerging the two or three vaccines that clearly were the best. We heard earlier, Paul, from Ian Hayden, that he might be up to uh, doing what's called a challenge trial to speed up the development of this vaccine. And in a challenge trial, okay, he gets the vaccine, but he also gets exposed deliberately to the virus. Would that speed up production? Is that a good idea? So um, when you do a prospective placebo-controlled trial, you have to hope that enough people get infected with this virus in the placebo group so that you can answer the question about whether the vaccine worked or it didn't. But you have to hope that's true. And therefore, you have to be lucky at some level that you're introducing that trial into an area where there's still enough circulating virus and illness that you can know that. You can sort of take the risk out of that by doing human challenge studies where you actually inoculate people with the virus that you're trying to protect against to see whether or not it really does work, whether your vaccine really is protective. Um, in theory, that can speed things up. But the, the, at least the sense I get from the NIH group that is working to make these vaccines uh, and test these vaccines is that, that it really wouldn't speed it up. What you have to do, at least to get through the through drug administration in terms of doing human challenge studies, is pretty difficult. So we'll see. We'll see whether or not human challenge studies are, are done. I think right now that's not on the table. What if the first successful vaccine comes from China? The administration has a contentious relationship with that country. Will that uh, interfere with our ability to use it? I hope not. I mean, it, it's always about the data. It should never be about politics. You know, what, what are the data? And when you look at a prospective placebo-controlled efficacy trial, what are the data? If the data are promising, if the data are clear, then you go with the data. It should, politics should never be part of it. And you mentioned scaling up production. I mean, once you have a vaccine that seems to work, you got to make a lot of it. And we're talking hundreds of millions of doses at a minimum. You know, is, is that a problem? And is it also a problem that, as I understand it, this mRNA vaccine, you know, you put it in the bottle and a week later it might not work anymore. I mean, it actually kind of decays. Right. So, so I think it's actually the hardest part of making vaccines is the actual making of them. You have to mass produce them for millions of people. You have to have the right buffering agent, the right stabilizing agent, the right vial. You have to do real-time stability studies, which is to say you have to make sure that the vaccine doesn't degrade as it goes from the tarmac to the person's arm. Those studies are time-consuming. And the hardest part, actually, is these aren't small molecule drugs like amoxicillin, where you can say, yes, I have 50 milligrams in this batch and 50 milligrams in that batch. These are biologicals. So the process becomes the product, and the process has to be the same from one batch to the next to the next. And that may sound easy, but it's not. Okay. Uh, Are you optimistic, by the way, that that we have the capability in this country to do that? Or are we going to rely on production facilities overseas? 
No, I'm, I'm optimistic that we can, with this kind of warp speed uh, program, mass produce vaccines for our country. It will probably, we're not going to make 300 million doses of these vaccines at once. And so I think what will happen is that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, will probably outline priority groups for who's the first wave of people to get it, second wave, third wave. We think of a vaccine as our uh, great hope to ending this crisis, but Dr. Anthony Fauci recently said that it might not be effective in stopping the virus. What was he trying to say by that? Well, I think we'll learn as we go. I, I, as a general rule, um, these kinds of viruses, respiratory viruses, mucosal viruses, protection tends to be um, incomplete and short-lived, meaning that the, the protection isn't for decades, it's more likely for a few years, and that the protection um, isn't complete, meaning you're protected against moderate to severe disease, but not necessarily stay mildly symptomatic disease in which you could still be shedding the virus. So I think that's probably what he's referring to. But I think the goal of this vaccine is to keep people out of the hospital and keep people out of the morgue, and I think that's a goal that can be met. So people who actually get this disease develop antibodies. There's no vaccine yet. Is their ability to resist the disease in the future, maybe a second exposure, is that any different from the kind of protection that somebody who would get this vaccine would have? I was a child of the 50s. I had measles. I had mumps. I had German measles. I had chickenpox. I had all those diseases. The immunity that I developed from being infected with measles as a child will last me for the rest of my life. My children, on the other hand, were not infected with measles. They were given a measles vaccine. Um, the amount of antibodies that I have directed against measles is probably three times greater than theirs. Having been naturally infected with measles, I have a greater antibody response to measles than that what they had, which was being immunized with a live weakened form of the measles virus, the measles vaccine. But the critical question is, is it good enough? Is having that immunity that my children developed good enough to protect them? And the answer is yes. We were able to eliminate measles from this country by the year 2000 with the measles-containing vaccine. So the question is, is the immunity induced by natural infection better than the immunity that's induced by vaccination? Generally, it is. The problem is you have to pay a price for natural infection. Um, and I fortunately wasn't hospitalized and didn't die from measles, but certainly people did when, when I was in, growing up in the 1950s. The goal of any vaccine is to induce the immunity that's induced by natural infection without having to pay the price of natural infection. And I think that that's the goal here too. Well, Paul, you spent a good part of your career dealing with the anti-vaxxers, the resistance to vaccinations. And that crowd has definitely not gone away during the pandemic. They seem to be ramping up. So if we do develop an effective vaccine in the next 6, 12, 18 months, what happens if uh, the anti-vaxxers say don't take it? I mean, is that going to be significant or do those people just get sick? If this virus is then the scourge that it is today, meaning killing 1,000 to 2,000 people a day, and you have clear data that one, the vaccine is safe, meaning doesn't cause an uncommon side effect, and two, that it is to some extent effective, even if it's 50% effective, 70% effective, I think people will be knocking down the doors to get this vaccine. I mean, I understand the anti-vaccine people have been wondering whether or not this vaccine is going to be mandated. I mean, mandated. There may be a lottery for this vaccine. I don't think they're going to have much influence. Certainly, they'll put out their usual misinformation and float their conspiracy theories. But I just don't think in the face of this scourge, assuming it continues the way it is, that this is going to be a big issue. Finally, Paul, to end on a bit of an upbeat consideration, what is the optimistic scenario for what the world will come to look like as people start to get the vaccine? I think there's a lot at stake here. And this can go one of two ways. One way it can go is like the end of the movie Contagion where the vaccine was the hero of that movie. People were lining up to get that vaccine to save their lives. And that's perfectly possible that it could play out that way. The, the, the second possibility, though, is that it might have an unanticipated side effect, or it might have a, a duration of immunity that is less than was hoped for, it, or it might not be as completely protective as one had imagined. And I think we need to make sure, because there's such a fragile vaccine confidence in the United States, that we make sure that people understand the possible limitations of this vaccine or these vaccines when it rolls out, so that we don't shake that vaccine confidence. Paul Offit, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Paul Offit is head of the Vaccine Education Center and chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We have another coda to add to this interview. This vaccine story is fast moving. 
Hours after we spoke with Dr. Offit, President Trump formally announced Operation Warp Speed, an effort to further speed up vaccine production from the already fast-tracked 12 to 18-month timeline to have a vaccine out by the end of the year and available to the public by January. We wrote Dr. Offit and asked for his comment on the president's ambitious timeline. Dr. Offit expressed doubt about it, saying... The clinical trial, at best, won't be completed until the beginning of next year. So if this vaccine is out by the middle of next year, I would be amazed. Well, the big picture here is that while we're all impatient for the arrival of this coronavirus vaccine, developing a vaccine for a newly emerged virus takes time. But it is something that we have a lot of experience around. And there are a sequence of steps, which we heard, and we are following those steps, and we're even trying to shave off some time in some of those steps to get the vaccine to us as quickly as possible. One of the interesting things that I've learned here is that this new approach using mRNA It's quite interesting because it trades on the fact that we know more about viruses than we did a few decades ago. So as an alternative to other approaches where you, you know, you just take the whole virus in a weakened form and you inject it into somebody the way you would do with smallpox or polio, some of these other things, you can just try and train the body to recognize one part of the virus, the little spikes, because if it can recognize those and take them out. So yeah, then the virus is in there, but it doesn't really have a chance to, to make you sick because it can't latch on to your cells. That's a new approach based on new knowledge. And, uh, you know, that, that struck me as quite encouraging. That is. Uh, but to be clear, as Dr. Offit said, that's a novel approach, and it's one of many approaches that scientists are taking toward vaccine development. And we may see many kinds of vaccines when they do arrive. I thought it was also interesting that he did say that even fast-tracked as these vaccines are, you know, we may not be rolling up our sleeves until the middle of next year. So we have to be patient but we can feel comforted knowing that scientists around the world are working on a preventative measure for this terrible virus. We've said this before, but it really bears repeating. There's a lot of misinformation about the outbreak, and that's a bit like a separate viral invasion. It's also crucial to stop it. So if you come across cures or statistics that don't seem right, check the facts. And these are available at your local public health service and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. Follow the science. We're doing the show thanks to the help of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. Thanks to them for continuing to work on the show from their homes. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the mechanisms of biology. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and also a big thanks to our listeners. This episode of Big Picture Science is Vaccine When? If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science and specifically shows about coronavirus, well, you'll find all of that in our archive on our website, bigpicturescience.org, and you'll find links there to the guests you've heard. Now, go wash your hands. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.